0: Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Channel Podcasts, In Conversation.
1: Hello and welcome to the August 2022 episode of the EVJ In Conversation podcast. I'm your host Rhiannon Morgan. We have two guests joining us today. Emily Floyd discussing high flow oxygen therapy for foals and Matilda Plowman talking about high power laser therapy for soft tissue injuries. Emily Floyd is a clinical director and medicine specialist at Rossdale's Equine Hospital in Newmarket. Her paper, titled Nasal High Flow Oxygen Therapy in Hospitalised Neonatal Foals, can currently be found in the Early View section on the EVJ website. Emily, thank you very much for joining us today on the EVJ podcast to talk about your recent paper Um, based on nasal high flow oxygen therapy in hospitalised neonatal foals. Can I start by asking you to talk us through the different options of oxygen therapy commonly used in foals and when and why you would implement this therapy?
2: Sure, yeah. Thanks, um, Rhiannon, for inviting me to come on today. So... I mean, st- standard practice is to use just traditional uh, low-flow oxygen therapy. So to do that, we would use just a normal either piped oxygen supply or just oxygen tank. And then we'd connect that to a small plastic Ryles tube um, that we, you know, poke up the foals nostril up to about the level of the medial canthus of the eye. And then we um, supply a flow rate of usually anywhere between about 1 to 15 litres per minute. Um, it should be humidified. So if we're doing it for any length of time, we always add a humidifier to that set just to make sure... That the oxygen's not too drying to the nasal mucosa. And we do that for lots of reasons, really. So any foal that's going to be recumbent for a long period of time, foals that have primary respiratory disease, you know, things like pneumonia or foals with you know secondary pneumonia from recumbency. But actually, even in our really sick foals that you know have other primary problems, sometimes supplying a low flow of oxygen can just help reduce their work of breathing, which can obviously help maintain their energy levels and um, and you know other things. Um, so that, that would be the main thing we would do, and that's quite common practice. Even when we do that, though, we're quite careful to monitor oxygen levels, and you know, we consider trying to give them the least amount of oxygen that we need. We don't use it too sort of willy-nilly.
1: So in humans, um, they use non-invasive ventilation, such as continuous airway positive pressure or high-flow oxygen therapy. So how do these differ, and what pros and cons do each technique offer?
2: Yeah, so there's um, a big drive in humans to use non-invasive ventilation, and I think we all learned a lot about that through the COVID pandemic, haven't we, that, you know, there's, it's sort of highlighted all the downsides of mechanical ventilation, but there's obviously only so much um, support that giving a low flow of oxygen can provide, and so using non-invasive ventilation is trying to provide a little bit more respiratory support, but without having to intubate the patient, because you can imagine that obviously once you've intubated the patient, you've broken that nasopharyngeal seal, you know, and you've then got um, a direct tube into the airway, and and that obviously greatly risks the chance of nosocomial infection and and other problems. And so non-invasive ventilation is um, supplying a greater method of respiratory support, usually using a mask or nasal prongs. And... The, the extra support is generally supplied by providing a little bit of pressure. And what the pressure does is it you're, you're either providing a little bit of end expiratory pressure or continuous positive airway pressure. What that's doing is it's preventing the airways from collapsing at the end of expiration. Um, so we're you know these are all trying to maintain that, what we call the functional residual capacity. So as you breathe out, you want to maintain some air in your lungs so that as you breathe in again, you don't have to open up all your alveoli, and that obviously reduces your work of breathing. So, the two main techniques that are used in humans is either CPAP, like you said, or the nasal high flow, and they they basically work in slightly different ways. So, the CPAP um, relies on providing a really tight seal. So, um, in humans, it's used by nasal prongs, and the nasal prongs have to completely obstruct your nostrils so that it forms a tight seal, and then it basically leaves a continuous pressure in the airway. So you're breathing in and out against its pressure. And that will help you maintain that functional reserve. Obviously, the downsides of that are that you have to have that tight seal. And so it's not always that comfortable for people. And if you lose that seal, you can lose the effectiveness. So the way that high flow therapy differs from that is that you you absolutely mustn't create a tight seal. It's really important that you don't. And so High flow therapy probably provides a little bit of positive airway pressure because you're obviously supplying a really high flow rate of humidified air and oxygen. But actually some of the additional benefit is caused by washing out um, the nasopharyngeal dead space. You're decreasing inspiratory resistance as well as providing a little bit of positive end expiratory pressure. Um, So they work in slightly different ways. In, In human neonatal care, if you ask nurses, their general preference would be to use the nasal high flow because it's much easier to use. You, you know, because you're not trying to create that tight seal, it tends to be a bit easier to set up. You've got less problems with it. And actually I think if you ask people which is more comfortable, there would generally be a preference to saying that the nasal high flow is more comfortable to, to, you know, to use.
1: Great, well, thank you. That makes it much clearer. So what, what was the aim of this study?
2: Well, so just, you know, in Foles, we've we've always been kind of limited to using just the traditional oxygen therapy, which, as we said already, you know, has limitations. It can only supply, you know, only provide so much support. You can, your oxygen flow rate is also limited. Most cylinders will only go up to 15 litres per minute. So if you need respiratory support beyond that or, you know, oxygen flow beyond that, you haven't got any options without going to mechanical ventilation. And obviously, you know, mechanical ventilators you know, will still have a place in equine neonatology, but they're not that readily available. They're quite expensive. They require quite a lot of specialist expertise to use them. And so there's a real window in equine neonatology for a method of respiratory support that provides a bit of intermediate support. So that foal that needs a bit more support than just low flow oxygen but you know it's not a candidate for the ventilator something in that middle ground that's going to provide you know a bit more than the low flow but without all the complications and the expense that um is associated with being on a ventilator and that works just not been done at all so there's a couple of studies in dogs where they've looked at using the high flow oxygen in in you know canine intensive care but this was the first um the first study that looked at using it in foals and actually we um, were very lucky that um, Professor Colin Morley who is actually Malcolm um Morley's dad he's a professor and absolutely phenomenal expert in paediatric resuscitation and he consulted with us and helped us and helped us work with a company who provide the high flow machines in you know making this making this possible and giving us the expertise we needed to to get the whole thing trying so it was just the aim of the study was to see if we could a, make it feasible in foals and whether or not it looked like it was going to be useful for them.
1: Okay, so what what equipment's required to set up the high flow oxygen therapy? Um, you've given us some really nice images in the paper um, of the equipment and of it in use in a foal, but could you talk us through it?
2: Yeah, so it's the great thing about the high flow is it's it is really easy to use. I mean, the main thing that you need is obviously the high flow machine, um, and they again, the great thing about it is that, you know, they don't have many settings, they're quite robust, they're quite resistant to use in, you know, the equine, you know, equine stable, unlike, you know, the human um, intensive care unit. So you obviously need the, the basic machine. Then you then, you need to have, if you want to use oxygen, which you don't have to have oxygen, actually, you can provide just the flow rate without the oxygen. But if you want to be able to provide um, an oxygen mixture, then you have to have, obviously, you know, piped or, you um, tanked oxygen with the oxygen adapter and then you need to have these special circuits and actually the special circuit is probably the most important part of the machine because if you can imagine if that you are trying to get the oxygen air mixture from that machine all the way to the foal it can't be cooled if you have if you are having a really high flow rate of oxygen say 40 to 60 litres a minute and it wasn't it wasn't warmed it's really irritating to the nasal mucosa so these special circuits are heated so that connects between the foal and the machine And then you have to, if you're trying to use it in horses, you have to adapt the interface. So the human interface obviously doesn't fit um, because, you know, horses have very different shaped nostrils. So you have to sort of modify the adapter, take the connector part off. And then we used um, just a cheap little uh, Y-piece adapter that you can buy on eBay. And then you connect that. What we've used is... um, just thoracic chest tubes again because they're the right length they're nice and soft they're readily available and then you can cut them to the length you want and then connect them onto the machine and that that you know that's everything you need and also just some distilled water to put into your chamber.
1: So could you talk us through um, the population of foals that you included in the study and what you assessed throughout treatment?
2: Yeah so this study was I mean it was really just a sort of pilot study looking at using it and it's sort of followed the progression of how we adapted it to use in the neonatal unit so basically we included you know any foal that went on to high flow during the study period And, and we have obviously treated some foals since then and we're trying to accumulate some more data you know looking looking at other other cases so basically it was a real mixed bag of populations you know reflecting what we usually see so foals with either neonatal maladjustment syndrome foals with sepsis um They they were the main things. We had a couple of premature foals as well and a couple of foals that had more primary respiratory disease, so foals that had things like meconium aspiration. Um, In terms of what we assessed, I mean, it was really a sort of clinical series. So we we were just assessing clinical data and we were assessing blood gas values that we'd have assessed anyway in these foals. So we were measuring their um, partial pressure of oxygen and carbon dioxide, um, obviously before and after treatment and then during treatment, um, as well as all the, you know, the clinical variables that would normally be measured.
1: And so how many foals did you manage to recruit into the study? And um, on admission, how did you decide or what problems were they, what clinical signs were they showing on admission? And then how did you decide to to give them the the high flow?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I guess recruiting is probably the wrong word in as much as this was really our, uh, you know, our case population. And we've, we, collected data from the folds that we felt were candidates for high flow rather than having any strict criteria and this obviously is you know it, this is really the preliminary data so we, we hope to learn more over the next few years about you know what really are the best indications for it so you know these folds all came into our fold unit for their primary problems which like I said you know most of them I guess the bulk of them had some variety of neonatal maladjustment and then we had a, you know, a few premature folds, some folds with sepsis, some folds with things like meconium aspiration. And so our, our, our decision to use high flow was based on their clinical progression. We didn't have any strict criteria about you know, a specific you know, partial pressure of oxygen or anything that, that meant we would make that transition. But it was that clinical feeling that these foals needed more support. That may have been because they were showing signs of hypoxemia on blood gas, or it may have been because these foals were showing signs of either respiratory fatigue or increased respiratory effort. Um, so the, the difficult thing, and one of the reasons why the study d- didn't really show any significance, I don't think, in terms of altering partial pressure of oxygen is because actually most of these falls had already been on traditional oxygen therapy so most of these falls progressed from being on traditional oxygen therapy to high flow and so they you know they weren't all hypoxemic and some of these falls we were able to maintain their oxygen levels with a high flow rate of oxygen so you know 10 11 12 liters per minute but we still felt these falls were showing signs of respiratory fatigue so the sorts of things we might see would be things like an abdominal effort. So, you know, the foals then getting, um, you know, fatigue of the respiratory musculature. And because they have such a soft thoracic cavity, they can then start to get that sort of paroxysmal respiration where they're starting to get an an abdominal component. And so a lot of the decision was made on that feeling that these foals were showing signs of progressive respiratory dysfunction, plus or minus hypoxemia. So, you know, there's no strict hard or fast rules, about that I guess there was one one fall out of this group was a fall that was delivered by um, terminal c-section and so was you know inappropriately sort of primed for for life and in those premature falls one of the biggest problems we face is you know that failure of transition of respiratory function and we put that flow on high you know straight on high flow in an aim to try and prevent atelectasis and actually that wasn't that successful so you know there are definitely will be indications that we'll learn where high flow isn't, you know, isn't going to be the magic solution for, for every fall.
1: Could you talk us through your experience of the high flow oxygen therapy? Um, did you manage to achieve the desired flow rates? How long did you use the therapy for? Um, and you've, you've spoken a little bit about it, but what changes did you see um, post compared to prior the therapy?
2: Yeah. So um, I think the first thing to say is actually from the point of view, you know, actual experience of using it, the best thing about it is it's really easy to use. So, you know, when we get our ventilator out, we usually all have like a little mini cardiac arrest ourselves and everyone has to get the manual out again. And, you know, it can be quite stressful. Using high flow is, is completely the reverse of that. It's so easy to use, which makes it very nice. So it's easy to set up. It's easy to use. Um, and, you know what we'd be looking for, and what we saw in the folds where it's successful is, it's quite amazing how much you see a reduction in their respiratory effort. I would say that's the main clinical factor that you identify. That as you're providing that little bit of you know end-expiratory pressure, you're washing out that dead space, that it really reduces their work of breathing. And I think that's the main thing that you know from the clinical observation point of view, you see in the folds where it's effective, maybe a slight decrease in their respiratory rate, but also a real improvement in their respiratory effort that they're not having to make that excessive respiratory effort and actually um one of my kids actually had has asthma and he went to hospital in the last year and had to go for hypha himself and again it was just that really obvious thing to me that seeing how much it can help respiratory effort that you know it really provides relief to those foals when they're finding it difficult to maintain their functional residual capacity and you know that you're finding that every time they're breathing as their alveoli collapse they're having to reinflate their lungs it's really tiring and so I think that's one of the main benefits is that is that relief that they experience from it. Um, In terms of you know what settings you use and all those things and obviously there's a bit of learning about that and we were extrapolating a bit from what they do in humans and then we also use some of the dog information and you know, in humans, they would t- typically go for sort of 40 to 60 litres per minute total flow rate. And so that was basically what we were aiming for in foals. Um, and obviously in the, in the big foals, you know, if, if you have a sort of, you know, 70, 80 kilo foal, that's, you know, you, we might not be able to achieve quite what they were achieving in humans. We did find that when we set off with the whole process, that we weren't able to achieve the maximum flow rate. So we were using, you know, either in a really small fall, if you have a small connector, that you can't achieve the maximum flow rate of 60. So um, that, that may be a slight limit. And actually we did some adjustments, used some bigger connectors, and then we find that we were able to achieve the 60 litres per minute. But in a, in a small fall, because of the length of their nasal cavities, you, you, know, you mustn't occlude the nasal passages. That's really important. So, you know, you may find that it's difficult to achieve the maximum flow rate. Um, But like I said, it's technically very easy. You know, you just set the flow rate. You then mix the oxygen into what level you want. So, you know, we might find that actually you don't need a huge flow rate of oxygen because you're then improving the foal's overall respiratory function. So it, it mixes the air and oxygen for you.
1: And treatment was discontinued in two foals in the pilot study. So what prompted this and what were their outcomes?
2: Yeah, so I think actually... Well, two folds went on to 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 be ventilated, and two folds we just discontinued the use. And actually, the two folds we discontinued use was actually be, before we would had sort of anticipated was because they responded so well, um, and because of the device, it's you know it's a fixed device with that circuit that you know, it's not that mobile. So if you have a fold that's becoming too active, then you just can't maintain it. You know, you can't maintain the the equipment in place but actually that's usually a good sign anyway and as much as the foals are then too active once they start becoming more ambulatory actually they usually don't need the high flow but it, it does mean I think if we're starting to look at extrapolating this to other veterinary interventions you think about things like foals of rhodococcus it would be very difficult to maintain it in this current situation for foals that were ambulatory you know it really only works in a foal that's predominantly recumbent or at least not moving around and then We had two foals that also progressed on to use the ventilator and they were foals that had just more profound disease and the non-invasive ventilation was just not enough to provide adequate respiratory support. One of those was a foal that had, you know, was a foal the mal adjustment that was just experiencing really bad respiratory fatigue and the high flow wasn't enough to prevent that. And that foal went onto the ventilator, was ventilated for a few days and then was weaned back. From the ventilator onto high flow and that fold did fine. And the the other fall that went on to use the mechanical ventilator um, had really severe sepsis and died of multi-organ failure. I think, in all honesty, you know, it, it, the, the disease severity was beyond any any sort of respiratory support that we could have provided.
1: How did your pre-high flow oxygen therapy and post-therapy values compare? Did you see significant differences between between these?
2: Yeah so now as, as I alluded to sadly we didn't in this sort of preliminary data that we collected and actually that was obviously disappointing to us because you know we'd hoped to be able to prove that you know the, the technique's effective but actually the way that we did you know we collected the data there's a lot of reasons why I think that's the case first obviously it's you know it's in the scheme of things it's a very small number of foals but also like I said most of these foals were already on Traditional oxygen therapy first, and many of these falls weren't hypoxemic. Um, you know, at the time we started the high flow, and it's all a bit of that learning process. And since then, we've been collating data for the last two years using a, a bit more of a standard starting protocol. And actually, I think when we hopefully collate a slightly bigger number of cases in the next couple of years, we will be able to show that it's effective at increasing PO2. When you compare what we we looked at compared to, say the dog study, they had very strict you know it was more of a prospective study they had a very strict inclusion criteria and they were only recruiting dogs when they were already hypoxemic and so obviously in that case it's much easier to show benefit whereas we weren't so strict so I think actually like I said hopefully with you know a wider use and a bigger case series we'll be able to show that it, it is effective at you know a increasing PO2 but also maintaining or slightly decreasing POCO2. And actually, if you look at the trends of what we reported, that was definitely the case. But, you know, with all those limitations, we weren't able to show significance.
0: So
1: overall, how has this changed your clinical practice? And um, Would you recommend this treatment option to others?
2: Yeah, so it definitely has changed our clinical practice in as much as it's really given... It's it just given us that in-between extra level of support. And I think it's really you know, it's obviously not going to be for everybody. But I think if you're in the situation where you deal with a reasonable number of folds, but you perhaps don't have the desire or the caseload to want to be able to use mechanical ventilation, it's a really nice tool, because it can allow you to provide that next level of care to folds that you maybe couldn't look after otherwise. Um, and it, obviously, you know, when we use mechanical ventilation, we appreciate that there are a lot of things that can go wrong. We see things like secondary ileus in foals. We obviously worry about pneumonia. You know, it's very labour intensive. And just reducing the number of foals that we need to use mechanical ventilation in our practice is massively beneficial actually to staffing and stress levels and everything else and the foals' outcomes. So, you know, it, for us, it, you know, it definitely is a bit of a game changer because it allows you to, to, to help a bit more, but without going to that final step of mechanical ventilation.
1: Uh, and finally, what's your take-home message for practitioners listening?
2: I think just that this technique's out there and available and we'll we'll definitely work with it and adapt it and you know understand more about the exact indications over the next year or two. You know, and it's not going to be the magic bullet, you know, there will be still folds that it still won't be enough, but that it just is allowing us to, you know, progress the level of intensive care that we're able to offer. Offer folds in a, you know, in a practical setting.
1: Perfect. Well, thank you very much for yeah, sharing this really interesting pilot study and it's been great to hear about your experience with it.
2: Thanks very much Brandon, for having me.
1: Thank you. Matilda Plaum is here to discuss her recent paper titled, Histological Tissue Healing Following High Power Laser Treatment in a Model of Suspensory Ligament Branch Injury. This work was carried out as part of a PhD thesis on the effect of high-power laser treatment on tendinitis and desmitis in the horse, carried out at Ghent University. Matilda, thank you very much for finding time to join us on the EVJ podcast this month.
0: Yeah, thank you for uh, this opportunity.
1: Um, we're going to be talking about high-power laser therapy in horses today. So my first question is, um, in humans really, high-power laser therapy is often used when treating soft tissue injuries in humans. So which injuries is it most commonly used to treat, and what effect does the laser have on these lesions?
0: So high-power laser therapy has been well-described for treatment of chronic lower back pain and patellar tendinopathy, and it's also to treat achilles tendinitis in humans. And the effects were a reduction of inflammation and a reduction of pain and an acceleration of the recovery process.
1: And now it's increasingly being used in the horse high-power laser. So your research group has carried out a lot of work in this area. Um, What do we already know about the use of high-power laser in horses?
0: Yeah, that's right. So first we started uh, to perform a clinical study, including 150 sports horses. And what was seen was an improvement of lameness and ultrasonographic appearance after two weeks of laser therapy. We also saw a low uh, re-injury rate after two years with only 18%. And a faster rehabilitation protocol was possible compared to what's described for treatment in other um, tendinopathy treatments. And also there is a paper out on 26 horses uh, that has a group and a treatment group. And the analgesic and anti inflammatory scores were better, the lameness improved, and there was better lesion filling on ultrasound. And also, the successful application in two horses with um, medial collateral ligament uh, of the carpus injuries was described.
1: So, what did you aim, or well, you and your research group aim to study in this research um, study?
0: So in this study, we try to study the effects of high-power laser therapy at tissue level in a model of suspensory ligament branch injury.
1: And can you talk us through your study design, um, including which horses used in the study, uh, the surgical procedure they underwent, and what course of um, high-power laser therapy they received?
0: Yeah, of course. So we used 12 warm blood horses in the adult uh, age range from 4 to 12 years old. They were all sound, they had no changes on ultrasound, on the flexor tendons or on the suspensory ligament, and they were randomly assigned to either short-term six horses or long-term six horses. Um, they underwent surgery under general anesthesia, and core lesions uh, were created in all lateral suspensory branches of each horse. We used an Arthrex torpedo uh, to create... Uh, A lesion, a columnar-shaped lesion of four centimeters in length and a width of four millimeters. And we started to treat them with high-power laser uh, on day one on two of the four induced lesions for four weeks in a row. Um, The rehabilitation protocol started on day one. So the first week we launched the horses. And after that, we um, hand-walked them until we started the rehabilitation uh, protocol including trod on a soft surface from three months on um, and the power uh, the high power laser device we used is a um, 15 watts that emits four different wavelengths at the same time um, and the power density was approximately 250 joules per square centimeter on each limb and before the laser therapy we prepared the skin by clipping it um, and it's with alcohol and the laser handpiece was kept perpendicular to the skin and moved in a linear fashion.
1: And how often did they receive the laser therapy?
0: So they received it daily for four weeks.
1: Um, um, was there a particular duration of time they received over? So the treatment
0: was approximately 20 minutes, depending a little bit on the movement of the horse during the treatment.
1: Okay. So once the groups were sacrificed at four and six weeks, I think they were your short and long-term groups, how were the suspensory branch ligaments assessed?
0: So the limbs were removed within 30 minutes after euthanasia. Um, Then overnight, they underwent a and the ligament samples were taken after 12 hours. Uh, We took multiple samples. So if we see the four-centimeter length lesion, we took a sample at the base at two-centimeter, at the proximal end, at 6 centimeters, and in the middle at 4 centimeters, and then also a longitudinal sample. And they were stained with hematoxin, collagen 1, collagen 3, and von Willebrand factor immunostain. These stains were um, observed um, by two blinded observers, uh, of which one was a board veterinary pathologist, and they were given scores ranging from zero to three, where zero would stand for normal, and three would stand for abnormal or increased. Um, and then to render the outcome um, binary, we use cutoff values, so either score above, above two to, um, to analyze this using a mixed effects logistic regression uh, where the horse as a random effect, and these models were built in a stepwise forward fashion.
1: So what differences did you find between normal and abnormal suspensory ligament branches um, with respect to your histological analysis, as you've reported in this paper, but also the ultrasound and MRI findings, which were reported by your group in a a separate paper, but were part of the same study. So it'd be great to hear about all those findings.
0: Yeah. So in this study, we focused um, on uh, on the tissue level, really. In a previous study, we uh, did use um, ultrasound high field evaluation as well as Doppler. And what we saw on ultrasound uh, is that the lesion was uh, smaller after two and three months in the treated branches, and the enlargement of the lesion circumference uh, was was significantly lower in the short-term group. And the treated lesions showed a significant increased Doppler signal during the four-week uh, um, treatment compared to the controls. And on MRI, in the short and long-term uh, group together, there was a lower signal uh, in the treatment group. So, yeah, these um, showed that multi-frequency was did significantly improve healing of the suspensory branch ligament. Um, and then the next step uh, in this study was to, actually. At, uh, at tissue level, and what we saw is on tissue level in histology that the lesion area could clearly be identified. And in the short-term study, we found um, a significant better shape of the nuclei, a significant better fiber alignment and the fiber structure, and the variation of density was, was less, was lower. The long-term, the size was smaller, and the density of the, of the tenocytes was higher. And then if we combine both of those stories, of those studies, we saw again that the size of the treated lesions was smaller and the nuclei had a better shape.
1: And when you did um, histopathology of the long compared to short-term groups, did you find significant differences between these groups?
0: So the study, so whether it was short or long-term, ter- long was just taken into account as a co-variable in the multi-effect logistic regression and there were no significant differences between both.
1: Okay. So you were describing um, your histo- histological score and how you assessed each, um, each branch. Could you talk us through what each part of the score means? Um, for example, the lower regional variation of density of nuclei seen.
0: Yeah, Sure. So a normal tendon on histology uh, shows like spindle-shaped nuclei, very sparse and regularly divided across the ligaments. and the vascularization is sparse. The fibers are aligned linear, in pattern. Um, and what we see in, in patho- pathology, so in uh, equine tendons as well as in human tendons, uh, tendinopathy, is that the fiber pattern is normal. Uh, there's focal variation in, in density. the the nuclei are rounded and there's increased vascularization. Um, So, in our study, the regional variation of density was lower, which indicates a more regular nuclei across the injured ligament. The fiber structure and the alignment was better, and this is actually a parameter that's used very often um, to assess uh, treatments for equine tendinopathy. And this was also found in studies on rats, mice and rabbits, uh, after high-power laser therapy. The lesion size was smaller in the long-term and in the combined study, and this actually correlated very well with the findings we did on MRI and uh, ultrasound on these same suspensory branches. And the shape of the nuclei was more often rounded in the control group, and rounded nuclei, they they are presented um, in immature or activated a tenocyte tendonitis, so the shape being more spindle-shaped uh, resembles a more normal tendon. Let's say on the high, um, the higher density in the long-term study, um, actually. So normally in a normal tendon, the tenocytes are very sparse. However, when there is increased proliferation present after laser therapy, this is seen in vitro also and in studies in rats. Um, you do see an increase of the density. And that's actually explained by the effect of laser therapy on cells that the production of ATP by the mitochondria increases after absorption of infrared or near-infrared light by uh, cytochrome C oxidase. So an increase of uh, tenocytes was seen after a PAP injection in another study in the superficial flexor tendon. And this correlated well with a higher tensile strength. Then there was a higher collagen-3 content in the control group. Um, Collagen-3 is actually compared to collagen-1. And also in ruptured superficial flexor tendons, there is a substantial higher percentage of collagen-3 found. Um, So this could be explained um, that the lesions were actually larger in the control control group. And therefore, we might have found more collagen-3. There was, however, a mild observer difference uh, for dysparendia, and that could be because of the mild contrast of the stains and the semi-quantitative uh, scale that we used. Um, but still, after this observer, after we corrected for the observer effect, uh, there were still significant differences between the groups.
1: Okay, great. Thank you for talking us through that. Um, so you used a surgical model for suspensory ligament branch injury in this study. How does that compare to a typical natural overstrain injury?
0: Yeah, of course, it's an experimental model. So it's not entirely comparable to naturally occurring lesions. Um, and mainly because there's no inflammatory component. Um, this way, you create more of like a traumatic ins- um, but that's why we did uh, lunge the horses one week after lesion creation to actually create mild clinical signs of the smitis and mild lameness. Um, still, it's a more uh, way to create lesions compared to the enzymatic models like uh, collagenase that, that's been used very often as well.
1: So how has this study changed the way you, you practice clinically?
0: So, we've been using high-power laser therapy in clinic for nearly a decade now. And the first paper published in 2018 focused on 150 sports horses. Um, Now that we also performed a standardized study, an experimental study, first we saw beneficial effects of high-power laser therapy um, by means of imaging. But now the gold standard, histology, Actually supports the hypothesis that high power laser has beneficial effects on tendon healing, and now that this type of therapy has been thoroughly studied, I think both clinically and experimentally, um, significant uh, effects were found. And this now actually supports the therapies that we're performing.
1: Okay, and um, what was your t- what would be your overall take home message for practitioners listening?
0: In this study, uh, a standardized study on high-power laser therapy on induced suspensory branch lesions, there was significant better outcome for lesion size, density, variation of density, the shape of the nuclei, fiber structure, the fiber alignment. And this really suggests improved healing in a model of suspensory branch um, injury. And we, I think we can consider high-power laser therapy now as scientific-based medicine, not just as an alternative method
1: perfect well thank you very much for for finding time to join us today matilda thank you very much thanks again for listening and please join us for the october episode
0: thank you for listening to this equine veterinary channel podcast more about the subjects discussed today can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com
2: forward slash journal forward slash evj